Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. This music is in stark contrast to our topic. We are remembering the Great War, World War I. Its end was November 11th, 1918, called Armistice Day. Um, we're going to be joined in just a moment here with Harry Crocker, who's the author of a number of important works, including uh, The Yanks Are Coming, A Military History of the United States in World War I. He's also written Robert E. Lee on Leadership and The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Civil War. Now, in many ways, World War I has shaped the world we live in. Many people see World War I and World War II as really uh, the same war with only a, a brief armistice between them. But there are historians who would tell you that the role of the U.S. in World War I was late and not all that significant. However, my guest, uh, Harry Crocker III, has argued in The Yanks Are Coming, A Military History of the United States, that the U.S. had a, a definite, uh, definitely important role in winning the victory. And, uh, Harry, good to have you with me. Thanks. Well, th thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. W what would you argue is the most obvious evidence of the impact of World War I on today's world? Well, in the, uh, in the book, I talk about how for, I mean, the First World War gets sort of, I think, short shrift. Everybody yeah. knows about World War II right. and, and all that. But it's the First World War that actually is the war that makes the modern world. Mm -hmm. It is the war that sweeps away most of the crown heads, heads of Europe. It's the, during, it, during the war, the Bolshevik communist uprising happens in, uh, in Russia, turning it into the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. You've got um, you know, advances in weaponry and all sorts of things like that. But, uh, and you've got the, the, the map of the modern Middle East comes out of the, the aftermath of the First World War with uh, the borders of many of those countries being drawn by the likes of Lawrence of Arabia and, and Winston Churchill. So those are um, fairly artificial but, boundaries then? Well, I mean, you know, they were, <laughs> I suppose you could say artificial, but, also, but, but maybe not. I mean, they, they were drawn with, with uh, not entirely arbitrarily. Mm -hmm, right. uh, but it's also the, um, the war that, that springs America into true global prominence. Um, and and it, maybe we were dragged kicking, uh, kicking and screaming into it because uh, President Woodrow Wilson was the last person, he actually, of course, campaigned on, I kept this out of war, <laughs> right. to, to want to intervene in this, in this conflict. And in that regard, he was at odds with Teddy Roosevelt. They were like the bickering Gladstone versus Disraeli um, mm -hmm. in, the, in, the, in the years uh, leading up to our involvement, with, with Roosevelt pointing out, look, when you've got the Germans waging unrestricted submarine warfare, which is actually what eventually did prompt us to enter the war, he said, look, they've already killed more Americans than were killed at Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill, but at least the British were fighting armed men in uniform while the Germans are waging war on women, children, and businessmen going about their lawful business. Hmm. He said, you know, we're at war already. You just, you know, refuse to to confront the fact that we are. And in, in the shaping of this post-war world, of course, no one was more influential than Woodrow Wilson, who, in his, my book, he was bungled it. Yeah. <laughs> and he bungled it out of a certain sense of idealism, which was you know, one of the, the slogans of Wilson's, uh, of, uh, uh, one of the things he wanted to put in after the, the, the armistice was national self-determination. Mm -hmm. And it was... This was a great disintegrator of borders within Europe, right. which had been, you know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and whatnot. It also perversely re rewarded 
the very nationalism that caused the war in that the first we place. today, right. yeah, with the with the assassination of, the, of Archduke Ferdinand. But moreover, it, with the, what Wilson and his people, his administration, came to realize after they go to Versailles to work out the peace, was there were more people claiming to be nations than they knew of in Eastern Europe. <laughs> <laughs> they were being petitioned by all these people who before that had been under the Tsar, had been under the right. Austrian-Hungarian uh, Empire, and they said, who are all these people? I don't know about these people. Who are these? So it was really done out of a foolish idealism that in certain ways uh, set the seeds for for World War II. The one thing I try to point out repeatedly in the book is that when we think World War II, Winston Churchill told us this, no war was more preventable than World War II. But one of the things that, um, that we should never neglect to think about World War I is that in terms of Europe, Germany's geopolitical goals were almost precisely the same in the First World War as they were in the Second World War, mm-hmm. including Lebensraum in the East, the subjugation of Belgium and France in the West. Mm-hmm. Moreover, and this is, I think, maybe even the more telling point, is if we think about the ideology that drove the Second Reich. Now, no one is saying, I'm still not saying, that the Second Reich, the Kaiser's Germany, was anywhere remotely as evil as the Third Reich. Right. However, we have it on very good authority, including an American, Vernon Kellogg, who was an evolutionary biologist, trained at Stanford. He was sent on war relief work before we were involved in the war in Belgium. And during that time, he got to sit in on some of the councils of the German high command in occupied Belgium. And these were extremely well-educated men. Many of them, in fact, had been professors in civilian life. And he was astonished. He was an evolutionist, a Darwinist himself. But he was astonished and horrified at the way that these German uh, leaders, military leaders, were infused, you've actually called it their gospel, they, they were infused, or they believed as their gospel, this idea of social Darwinism. Yes, explain that, which, because I'm not yeah. sure all listeners are familiar with the phrase. Um, it, it's, it's, an, it's astounding. I've noticed this, too, in, in uh, doing research on the history of evolutionary thought, intellectual history of modern Europe. Uh, it, it's astounding how this was, you know, a biological theory gets translated into social philosophy. So what is social Darwinism? Right. In, the, in this case, in the German case, in the case of World War I, it was a use the means to justify war, war and aggression and the subjugation of the, uh, of the defeated and they, who deserved subjugation, who deserved to be, um, uh, because they were, they were considered lesser orders, lesser mm-hmm. beings. I mean, this wasn't the... the uh, the Holocaust. It wasn't sending people to gas chambers. It was uh, executing civilians who got in the way. It was saying we have every right to conquer Belgium and France. These are these are lesser peoples, and you, in a way, you sort of proved your superiority by war, by victory in war. That's right. And the Germans, who were in fact the most educated people in Europe, they were the industrial dynamo of Europe. You know, they certainly believed that they had um, they had a leadership role in the continent that was being uh, denied to them by either decadent Frenchmen or or barbaric Russians, and um, and they were determined to exert that uh, that power. Now I, I will also say this: I am by no means um, an anti-German person either. I'm just sort of stating the the intellectual <laughs> atmosphere in which this aggression happened, because in many ways, in the outbreak of the war, the Germans, you know, they have a defensible position. They're coming to the to the aid of their ally. Um, Austria-Hungary. They're coming, uh, if they fought a purely Eastern Front war, 
it may have been morally justified. I mean, it was the nationalists, the Serbian nationalists, backed by Russia. And Russia had great war aims of its own. They wanted to seize Constantinople. Um, they had, they had, so there was all these geopolitical things that are going on that, that would have justified um, German support of Austria-Hungary. <laughs> what changes the whole moral dynamic, though, is the unprovoked uh, invasion of Belgium and France, which was tied to the German military strategy. Um, but also, there is, even here, this sort of Darwinistic sense, or this, or this Nietzschean sense of beyond good and evil, of beyond... Um, I'll, I'll quote the Germans themselves. Bethmann Holweg, the Chancellor of Germany, well, could not believe that Britain was going to go to war over what he called a scrap of paper. That scrap of paper were diplomatic guarantees that Belgian would be uh, its Belgian neutrality would be respected. Hmm. Now the Germans believed that neutrality. You know, what's that? Forget about that. Right. It, 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 if there's a military justification. Any papers we sign go out the door. And the British refused to take that position. And it astonished the Germans. And, um, and it was, you know, that to me is what changes the whole equation. And the Germans become the aggressors that, uh, that cannot really be uh, defended. Yeah, so the, the philosophical background is important here then. The, uh, looking, I'm looking here, in fact, at a quote from... Uh, a German biologist, Alexander Till, who's uh, actually passed away in 1912, uh, he said, if an act contributes to biological decline, it is immoral, even if it fulfills the Christian command of love and compassion. Uh, he said, honor your parents should become honor your child, that it may become fit and accomplish its works in life. This teaches ethics on a scientific foundation. Uh, even the most careful selection of the best can accomplish nothing if, it's not, if, if it is not linked with merciless elimination of the worst. And the proclamation of social elimination must therefore be one of the supreme forces, features of every ethics, which elevates as its ideal the goal that the theory of evolution has demonstrated. Do not spare your neighbor. This means becoming hard against those who are below average. Overcome one's sympathy. That was written in 1895. Was that a very common attitude among Germans? Yes. Well, mm-hmm. at least among the educated class. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. it went far beyond scientists. It was, you know, it infused the German high command, it infused many politicians. And uh, I think this is kind of an underreported part of the, of the story, even it is. though. Yeah. The uh, Vernon Kellogg, the American biologist I, I mentioned, he wrote a book about this urging. He, he himself was a pacifist. And he <laughs> said, look, I am not, having, even having seen all this, I am not for war, but I am for this war. Because, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but this, this German um, social Darwinism must be stopped. It wow. can only be stopped by force of arms. Now, when he wrote a book encouraging American involvement in the war, the guy who wrote the introduction to the book was no, no less than Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> and I, mean, I guess I mean throwing Theodore Roosevelt out in there is important, at least in terms of the book. I mean, I call it the angst coming for this reason. Most World War One histories are about, of course, the I mean, mostly about Europe. This book is ninety percent of it is about the American involvement in the war, and Teddy Roosevelt plays a poignant role in that because. Not only did he advocate 
what he thought the necessity of America going to war. He volunteered to go himself. Woodrow Wilson rejected that out of hand because he considered him a political right. rival. Right. But Roosevelt had four sons, and, he's, and he, uh, one of his daughters went there as a nurse before the sons even arrived. His four sons all went to war. Two of them were uh, badly wounded. One was killed. Mm. Of the uh, three survivors, all served in the Second World War. One of them was the uh, landed at D-Day uh, in World War II. And the sort of sweep of American history, these generations, is one of the things I try to drive home in the, in the and book. We'll pick it up there. Uh, when we come back on the other side of the break, my guest is Harry Crocker III. The Yanks are coming, a military history of the United States in World War I. Uh, many of you are familiar with uh, Harry's work in the book Triumph, which is a uh, rousing history of the Catholic Church. I'm Al Cresto. More coming back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, taking a look at uh, the United States' entry in World War One and how World War One shaped the modern world. My guest is H.W. Crocker III, and the book is "The Yanks Are Coming: A Military History of the United States in World War One." I. I wanted to ask if you believe that the First World War and the Second World War are really the same war because of German war aims, because of the abuse of the Versailles Treaty. Um, and what you had is a 20-year armistice between the two. Is that something you buy? Uh, yes, up to a point. I mean, I, the, the Second World War could certainly have been prevented, but it. Um, but again, the, the German war aims were very similar in Europe. Um, the Third Reich was a a, a nat, was not a not unnatural, and put it that way, development from the Second Reich. Um, a man named Eric Ludendorff, who was the, uh, along with um, General Hindenburg, were the two leading generals of the, the Second Reich during the war. Mm-hmm. They uh, essentially ran the country towards the end of the war. They practiced something they called war socialism. Ludendorff uh, turned out to be one of Hitler's early supporters after mm-hmm. the war. Interesting. Uh, and actually had much of the Nazi ideology already in his head. He believed that Christianity was a weak-kneed religion that was a problem. Uh, and uh, and had many other similar ideas. He fell out with Hitler, but Hindenburg, against his better judgment, was actually the man who elevated Hitler right. to chancellor. Right. Um, so the, you had, there's a direct connection between the leaders of the First World War and uh, and the man who would start the, uh, the, the Second World yeah. War. Uh, talk, what, what's the significance of the uh, bombing of the Lusitania? Well, uh, it, it is. It was one of the. It was an incident that everyone thought would drag. Not everyone, but a lot of people thought would drag America into the war because the the Germans um, are practicing in this un, uh, unrestricted submarine warfare. They shoot down. They sink via a U-boat, a submarine, a luxury liner on the with the argument that it was carrying munitions. Um, and they also said, look, we gave clear warning. We posted ads in, in New York newspapers with the clearance of the American State Department that said, look, you, if you, get, you are taking your life in your hand if you go on these ships. Um, but I think the, the, the idea that that justifies sinking a luxury liner that was packed full of women, children, civilians right. going off to... Uh, uh, to, to England is, I think, absurd. Now, he, Wilson, this is where Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, President Wilson, makes his speech, there's such a thing as a man too proud to fight. He did not let that 
become the um, the uh, he did not he did not want that to be become the, the causeless ally. Mm-hmm. But when the Germans, after retracting their policy of, of unrestricted submarine warfare, decided to reinstitute it, and in fact conspired with the with the Mexicans in the, in the you know the Zimmerman telegram, right. um, where they uh, they tried to get the Mexican government to say, look, or they tried, they tried to encourage the Mexican government to join the German Reich <laughs> in a in a war against the United States, in which Mexico could recover the Southwest right. territories of the United right. States. Right. Uh, the Germans, when they lifted unrestricted submarine warfare at, at the beginning of 1917, announced it in February, they did so with the presumption, with, with the assumption that it would bring America into the war, but they didn't care because America's military was so small. Mm-hmm. The German high command, Ludendorff, is the one who says this blatantly, we will defeat them, we will crush Western Europe, we'll crush or overrun France before they can ever get here. Um, and when America, when once, we, once we enter the war and one of our uh, naval representatives goes to London, he discovers that uh, the Germans were very close. The German uh, submarine cordon around the British Isles had cut Britain off from its its empire, and it was starving. They were they were sinking so much British tonnage that the Germans actually did have a legitimate chance to win the war had America not intervened. And we know that American intervention was decisive, not just from my book, but from <laughs> General Hindenburg, who said the war was lost. Um, when the American infantry stormed into um, our uh, our Western defenses, and and uh, w- w- at the time, were the American people behind the war, or was there a strong isolationist sentiment? There was a strong isolationist sentiment on many many grounds. Um, but after the Zimmerman telegram, and after the it, the the. Uh, I mean, Woodrow Wilson sort of changed his opinion along with the American people. Mm-hmm. By the time he said, we've got to go to war, most people said, we cannot stay out of this no matter how much okay. we, would, we would like to. So he did have that. You, you have a number of uh, profiles of the generals here and also uh, other uh, key figures. But I wanted to ask you about uh, the, the Alvin York story, uh, because many people know this Christian pacifist who ends up becoming uh, a great soldier. How significant is he in the popular imagination? Well, he used to be hugely significant. Uh, uh, I mean, I think this is one of the unique things about the book. About it, you know, the book covers all the major battles that we were involved in, all that sort of thing, the causes of the war, the, out, you know, the, the mm-hmm. Versailles Treaty. But about two-thirds of the book, I reckon, if not more, is devoted to profiles of either the American generals, some of them who led us into combat, but also American heroes of the time. And Alvin York is probably premier among these, because he was this backwoods mountain man who was a Christian pacifist and uh, had to be convinced by his officers after he, uh, after he was inducted into the army that it was, this was a just war. <laughs> he did, in fact, become convinced and, let, and in, a, in a great story, rounded up um, <laughs> A, a more than a hundred German soldiers, virtually <laughs> single-handedly, um, and they made a movie about this right. uh, just before the second, or before our entry in the Second World War, called Sergeant York, starring right. Gary Cooper, and it was, it was obviously in a way sort of prepping us for the next war to come. Just as a footnote, I can tell you that not only was that movie hugely popular and an Academy Award winner, it is, I have been told, Clint Eastwood's favorite movie. <laughs> I did not know that. That's a nice. But nice also, I, I have a, a. I actually combine 
the chapter on Alvin York with a chapter on uh, Father Fra- Duffy. Francis Duffy, yeah. Right. T- tell me who about was, it. Yeah. Um, well, I, this, this is the religious chapter of the book, <laughs> because you've got the Catholic Father Duffy with the Fighting, fighting 69th, this Irish uh, regiment, and you've got uh, Alvin York. But uh, Duffy is not only just this uh, heroic chaplain of the war, he uh, pinpoints a man he wants to become colonel of the uh, regiment, and the man he pinpoints gets a chapter of his own, too. That's Wild Bill Donovan. Hmm. Donovan was not only a Catholic and an infantry officer in the First World War, um, he had a brother who was a priest, and perhaps even uh, of equal interest is that he is the founder of the OSS. The OSS was the World War II precursor of the CIA. Right. So he was running all these intelligence operations during the, uh, during the Second World War after having served as an infantry officer in the First World War. And I guess that's something else that I hope is, is unique about the book, is that a lot of Americans, they're not really sure why we were involved, what we did, that, that sort of thing. And by looking at all these American lives, you can see that when we think of the, the, the greatest generation as the people who won the Second World War, a lot of the greatest generation got their start militarily in the First World War, men like MacArthur yes, and Patton, that's right. and all these men, they, that, this is what I mean, uh, I mean George, actually, George Marshall, George C. Marshall. George Marshall, yeah. right. Um, Marshall is a great planner already in the First World War. MacArthur is a brigadier general and wins uh, you know, in, in, in new, almost innumerable commendations for gallantry. Patton gets his start as a, as a tank officer. Uh, but even more than that, it's sort of putting this American experience of World War II in the full context of American history. And MacArthur's a good way to do that, because MacArthur's father, Arthur MacArthur, was a Civil War hero. Hmm. MacArthur remembered as a boy traveling in the Wild West from fort to fort with his father, and he, his vision of that Wild West was, uh, traveling with the cavalry, was like a John Ford Western. He thought, <laughs> yeah, he thought that's how he saw that time. Yeah. But here's the man who grew up with, you know, essentially wagon trains, cavalry wagon trains, um, fought in the First World War, fought in the Second World War, and lived to command in Korea where he had atomic weapons potentially at his disposal. So seeing that sort of arc of American wow, history yes, from, from covered wagons to the atomic yeah, age yeah. is something I try to bring out in the book because many of these guys had... You know, George Marshall is another one who, who, who does that same sort of uh, trajectory. Um, so anyway, that, no, that, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, because yeah, you, you get yeah. that. Yeah, you get that big arc. And even some of these heroes I point out are men like maybe Sergeant York is perhaps less well known today. Are men like Eddie, Eddie Rickenbacker? Eddie Rickenbacker was our American air ace, and he's a great American story coming from immigrant parents in Switzerland. He becomes a race car driver, <laughs> which leads him to uh, become. And he's actually he goes into um, the army not as a pilot. But as a driver, driving people like George Patton yeah. <laughs> and John, uh, John Pershing, who's the commander of the American Expeditionary Forces. Um, and, but he becomes, he's, you know, gripped with this desire for speed. He becomes a, a, uh, a pilot and as our air ace. And among those people serving with him is Quentin Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt's youngest son, who gets shot down and killed. Um, but after the war, he becomes this sort of uh, huge American hero, one of the great pioneers yep. of American aviation. Yep. Um, and just, it's just a, you know, there's lots of great stories. Like that. Even someone like Pershing. But, Pershing fought Indians. Oh, he starts wow. fighting Indians. That's... He goes to the Philippines and fights, guess what, Islamist 
terrorists. Yeah. The, in the Moro uprising in the Philippines. And he goes on to uh, become our commander, the, the, the top American general in the, in the First World mm-hmm. War. And, in the, and in, the, in, the, in, the, in the course of doing so, is training the men who will win the Second World War. Right. I'm going to ask you one of these large and lumpy questions, because I know you have, you think historically. When you profile these, uh, these leaders, uh, were they, did, was their understanding of spirituality, faith, God, different than what you would expect from a similar assemblage today? That's a really good question. Um, because one thing that struck me in writing the book was that these men come across as representing a distinct, identifiable American identity, yeah. which would be harder to replicate today. And I can do this in ways that sound flippant, but I don't think that they are. If you asked a man like uh, Douglas MacArthur or, mm-hmm. or George Patton whether women should be in combat roles in the military— they would be appalled. Right. Let alone if you ask them if open gays should be in the military. Right. right. <laughs> it would be unthinkable to them. Yeah. And not, it was not just unthinkable in the sense that that was just beyond their imagination. It was unthinkable in this sense. And this gets, starts heading towards your, the answer to your question about their, um, their religious views. Mm-hmm. Both MacArthur and Patton, we think of Patton as this foul-mouthed person, which was true, he could swear up a storm, but both of them viewed their calling as soldiers in a chivalric way. Mm-hmm. And in, in Patton, it is on, on paper. I mean, he gave, he gave lectures to young officers about how their vocation was the vocation of the knights of old and, had, and how they had to replicate that sense of chivalry that those men had. This chivalry was the constant within their profession. And MacArthur had he, MacArthur was not so blatant about it, but was had very similar ideas. Yeah. So these are men who took that sort of Christian, and even though neither one of them were Catholic, a sort of Catholic medievalist understanding sure. Sure. of war into battle with them in a way that I think would be. I mean, I, there are some great American leaders today who have that vision. I fear that we're losing it, though. Right. Yeah, that's the way it looks to me too. Harry, thank you so much. Uh, Great, my pleasure. Wonderful being with you. And um, The Yanks Are Coming is the name of the book, A Military History of the United States in World War I, H.W. Crocker III. I'm Al Creston.